Hello and welcome to another edition of Prophecy Update. We will continue with our look into the biblical covenants with covenant expert Vic Oberneder next week. This is the season we reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Scripture tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. As is typical in these end times, the naysayers try to refute and deny this important prophecy. Today our host Bill Salas, the author of the best-selling book Israelistine, The Ancient Blueprints of the Future Middle East, will be discussing the virgin birth with Dr. David Reagan of Lamb Lion Ministries. Let's join Bill, our host, and Dr. David Reagan as they begin their discussion. So, David, why is the virgin birth so important to Christians? Well, Bill, uh, I think it is vitally important because I believe that the virgin birth is essential to believe in if you are truly a born-again child of God. And I say that because the virgin birth is part of the identity of Jesus Christ as being God in the flesh. I mean, if he was... Who he said he was, and our only hope of salvation is to believe in the real Jesus, not the Mormon Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus or some Jesus conjured up by the Unity Church. But if we're really going to believe in the true Jesus, we have to believe that he was God in the flesh. And if he was going to be God in the flesh, he uh, had to be born of a virgin. He had to live a sinless life in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He could not inherit the Adamic sin nature. Well, how widespread is the denial of Mary's virginity, and how far back are the origin, origins of this denial? Well, it's really in modern times. Uh, throughout most of history, people have been willing to accept that. And I'm happy to say that even among the general population of the United States today, if you take a poll, the majority believe in the virgin birth, and Christians overwhelmingly believe in the virgin birth. Uh, But unfortunately, many theologians scoff at the virgin birth. Many seminaries make fun of the virgin birth. And polls taken among seminary students show that by the time they spent uh, two years in seminary, uh, more than half of them uh, just simply uh, say the virgin birth is, is a bunch of nonsense. So it is a very serious matter. And as a result of that, since more and more seminarians or coming out of seminary saying, yeah, the virgin birth is not important, it's non-essential, uh, it's a, a, a myth. Uh, they are therefore teaching that to their people, and we've noticed that over the last 20 years, the percentage of Americans in general who believe in the virgin birth has gone down considerably. Well, in your article, you point out three important points. You say, say that Christ had to be human, and yet he had to be divine, and he had to be sinless. And so can you explain why those three qualities uh, are, had to be all present in, in the hypostatic union with Jesus Christ and what that's got to do with the virgin Sure. Uh, he had to be human because no angel could die for our sins. Uh, he had to be divine because a mere mortal could not bear the infinite price that he had to pay for our sins. And he had to be sinless. A sinner could not die for the sins of others. And I think the virgin birth guaranteed the fulfillment of all three of these conditions because he was born of Mary, he was human. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was defined. And because he was born holy without a sin nature, he was qualified 
to serve as our Savior. So the virgin birth is extremely important. It's not just some, you know, Johnny-come-lately thing. And in fact, I want to emphasize that to you, Bill. Uh, many modern-day theologians uh, who, in their sophistication, uh, deny many of things in the Bible. They deny the miracles of Jesus. They deny the resurrection. They deny a lot of things. One of the attitudes they have about the virgin birth is it's just a Johnny-come-lately thing that a bunch of ignorant people in the first century made up to try to make Jesus uh, appear to be some sort of God in the flesh. Well, let me tell you something. It is not a Johnny-come-lately idea because, first of all, it was prophesied in the Bible that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In fact, the very first messianic prophecy in the Bible is one about the virgin birth. You find it in Genesis 3.15, at the very time that Adam and Eve ascend in the Garden of Eden, and the uh, curse was placed upon the earth and upon the uh, animals and upon them, uh, Jesus, I mean, God said to uh, Satan, he said, Satan, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, there's going to be a conflict between the seed of, of, of Satan and the seed of woman, which is a very strange comment from a Hebrew viewpoint to talk about a person born of the seed of woman. First of all, women don't have seed. Mm -hmm. So this is in itself a prophecy of the virgin birth. And it says there's going to be enmity, and it says you will bruise he will bruise you on the head. That's a lethal wound. You'll bruise him on the heel, which is a non-lethal wound. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but he overcame that through the power of the resurrection. So you've got the very first prophecy in the Bible pointing to a virgin birth, an unusual birth, a birth by the seed of woman. Then you come over to the book of Isaiah, and you find Isaiah saying uh, that he is going to be born of a virgin. And people say, well, but the word there in the Hebrew is a word that can mean a young woman a young maiden. And that's true. In the Hebrew, it can mean that. And uh, the, reason, uh, the reason it can mean that is because Isaiah was saying to uh, Hezekiah there, uh, I'm going to give you a sign that uh, the city of Jerusalem is not going to be destroyed. A young woman will give birth to a child and be called Emmanuel. God is with us. And evidently that occurred, probably one of Isaiah's own children. We don't know for sure. But the thing that's interesting is that when that verse was translated into Greek by the Hebrews themselves, by the Jews, in what's called the Septuagint translation, they used a word in Greek that could only mean virgin. And that is the word that is picked up in the New Testament and the word that's used in the New Testament. They saw this as ultimately a prophecy about the Messiah and that he would be virgin-born. So we have a testimony and prophecy that he's going to be virgin-born. And then... You talk about these ignorant disciples of the first century who simply made this up after the fact. That cannot be substantiated because the person who wrote more about the virgin birth than any other person was Luke. Luke was a physician. He was an educated man. He was not some ignorant shepherd. He was a man who knew how babies were conceived, how they grew in the womb, how to deliver them, the whole business. And I don't think it's any any mistake that God inspired him to write more about the virgin birth than all the rest of them put together. We have the testimony here of a medical doctor that Jesus was born a virgin. 
Well, you write about a, a section in your article about the Annunciation, and you actually get into the account in Luke 1, yes. verses 26 through 33. Do you think that's a good place to go at this point and kind of talk about that? Well, that's a very, very important scripture, um, Bill. It's, it's so important. I, I think it's so important we need to read it. I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard Version, and here's what it says. This is Gabriel speaking to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, there's a series of promises that are made to Mary here, some eight or nine, seven or eight promises that are made to Mary. And look at these promises. Number one, you will conceive in your womb. That occurred. Number two, you'll bear a son. That happened. You will call him Yeshua, the salvation of God, Jesus. That happened. He will be great. No doubt about it. Even those who don't believe in Jesus say it was great. He will be called the son of the most high. And he was by both the angels, by his father in heaven, by the angels, by the disciples. And then we come to the sixth prophecy. Very interesting. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Number seven, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. There's no fulfillment of those prophecies. The first prophecies, the first five, were all literally fulfilled. Suddenly, we get to these last three, and the modern-day church has taught for hundreds of years. Those have been fulfilled also. How? Well, they've been fulfilled spiritually. Why would the first ones be fulfilled literally and the last ones be fulfilled spiritually? It makes no sense. If the first ones were fulfilled literally, I think the last ones are going to be fulfilled literally. I call these the forgotten promises of Christmas. Because this is where we usually look at this passage is Christmas time. And I call them the forgotten promises. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. People say, well, he's on the throne of David right now. He is not on the throne of David. He is on his father's throne in heaven, sitting at his right hand. The throne of David has only been one place in all of history, and that's in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. That's where it still is. And that's where he's going to occupy it, one of these. But those who have an amillennial viewpoint and believe Jesus is never going to come back and reign have to explain this verse away. So they say it doesn't mean what it says. It means he's on the throne of his father in heaven. No, it means he's going to reign on the throne of his father, David. That's a throne here on earth in Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus even says that over in the book of Revelation. He says, just as I have been granted the privilege to sit on my father's throne, he said, one day I will allow you believers to sit with me on my throne and reign. So he clearly has the throne of David coming. Then the next one says he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. You know what the church says of that? The church says, well, I'm talking about the majority now, both Catholic and Protestant. What that means is that he's going to reign over the church. Well, Bill, it says he's going to reign over the house of Jacob. Since when did the house of Jacob become the church? Only in replacement theology. Only the idea that the church has replaced Israel, which is absolute nonsense. You know that. I know that. The Bible says in Romans 9 through 11 that's nonsense. No, the day's going to come when he's going to reign over the house of Jacob, and that's going to be during the millennial reign. And his kingdom will have no end. He's going to reign forever on the new earth. So those are three promises made to Mary that are yet to be fulfilled, and we need to remember those promises. But you know, Bill, there really is a lot more evidence here in the Scriptures that Mary was innocent, that she truly was a virgin. Uh, for example, 
when he made those promises, what was her first reaction? Verse 35, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? I am a virgin. Well, first of all, we need to realize how old Mary was. Most people are shocked when they find out that Mary was probably only at most 14 years old because that was the time of betrothal, of, of engagement in Israel, and still is to this day among many peoples in the Middle East. Mm. A girl at 13 or 14 is betrothed to someone. So this was a young girl, but she knew what caused a baby. And the first thing she said is, how can this be? I am a virgin. And the angel says to her, well, the Holy One's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, will overshadow you. And your offspring shall be called the Son of God. And this young girl, knowing that becoming pregnant outside of marriage would mean her disgrace, it could mean her stoning, uh, it could mean her divorce from Joseph, says, well, behold, I am the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Amazing faith on her part. Gabriel had just told her, nothing is impossible with God. She said, I don't know how this can be. He says, nothing is impossible with God. And immediately she just submits herself to God and says, okay. Now, notice what she does next in verse 39. She arises with haste to go to the hill country, to the city, to a city of Judah. And that's probably Ein Karim, a suburb of, of Jerusalem today. She goes down from Galilee to Jerusalem immediately. The first thing she wants to do, she goes down there for what purpose? She goes down there to greet her kinswoman, Elizabeth, and share the good news with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was an older woman who was barren, and she gets there and finds out Elizabeth is pregnant, and she finds out uh, that uh, she lets Elizabeth know that she is pregnant, that she is. Now, Bill, this woman is married to a priest, a priest. The last thing in the world you'd want to do is go tell a priestly family that you are pregnant outside your marriage relationship because that priest has the responsibility to report her and to bring judgment upon her, yet she went. And the other thing that's interesting is before she could even tell Elizabeth that she was pregnant, Elizabeth knew it. John the Baptist, who was in her womb, began to do somersaults, jumping up and down because he sensed that he was in the presence of the Christ child. And as he leaped in her womb, Elizabeth was given what I would call a word of knowledge from God. She, verse 42, cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She hadn't even been told yet, and yet here she has a, a, a word of knowledge from the Lord that Mary is pregnant, and she blesses her. Uh, let me tell you, every unmarried girl I've ever known that's gotten pregnant, the last thing in the world she wanted to do is run and tell the relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Here is the first thing Mary wants to do. She wants to share, share her joy. She wants to go to a priest and tell him, I'm going to have the Messiah. Mm -hmm. This is not the behavior of a guilty woman. And then it, down here it, it, it uh, says in verse 45, Blessed is is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. This is Mary, uh, Elizabeth speaking. And Mary begins to sing a song. Again, how many unmarried pregnant girls do you see rejoicing before the Lord, singing songs of praise to the Lord? And she sings, my soul exalts the Lord. And she goes on with this beautiful song. And incidentally, Bill, <laughs> back in the days when I was on the radio, uh, you know, I was on the radio for 21 years. Every year, at Christmas time, I would do a program about Mary because I believe Mary is a wonderful model for young women today 
uh, young teenage girls. She should be a hero to them and a model. But what's happened is because the Catholic Church has gone to the extreme of making Mary almost a god, those of us who are Protestants have simply put her aside. We have ignored her. We've not paid attention to her. We have put her down. And so every time at Christmas, I always try to lift Mary up and say, hey, this was a godly young woman, a young woman of great faith, a young woman who should be a role model, but let's not get her out of proportion. We must remember Mary was a sinner who needed a Savior. And Bill, every year when I made that point, every year, guess what? I got knee-deep in letters from people all over the nation calling me every dirty name in the book saying that the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell was reserved for me mm. because I had the audacity to say that Mary was a sinner who needed a Savior. Well, let me tell you something. Mary said it. Look at verse 42, 6. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She called that child in her womb, God my Savior. She needed a Savior just like you and I needed a Savior. She was not a God. She was a righteous young woman that God selected for this very special mission, but she was not a God. You know, you let's stay on this topic for a second. You talk about a song <laughs> where they're trying to, a secular song, yeah. where it talks about he's just a man, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I, don't, is, I know, don't know how to take this. I don't see why he moves me. Yeah. He's just a man. Yeah, well, this, you know, Satan hates the virgin birth with a passion. He hates it. He hates it because it attests to the fact that Jesus really was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. So Satan has done everything he can throughout history to undermine the virgin birth. Even at the time of Jesus, uh, there was ambivalence about where he came from. People would say to Jesus, well, we know where you came from. And, and there were rumors that he was the product of some Roman soldier or some merchant seaman or, you know, whatever. And throughout history, there has always been this kind of thing of Satan trying to stir this up. And so I made the point that in the musical, uh, the Broadway musical, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, that the lead song in that whole thing is one that Mary Magdalene sings about Jesus while he is asleep. And she goes over and says, you know, I don't know how to love him, what to do, how to move him. I've been changed by him. Yes, really changed. In these past few days, I've seen myself. I seem like someone else. And then she comes to it. I don't know how to take this. I don't see why he moves me. He's a man. He's just a man. And I've had so many men before. In many ways, he's just one more. This is Andrew Lloyd Webber, the greatest musical writer of the late 20th century, putting this doubt about where Jesus came from into the central song of this whole. If there's one song in the whole musical everybody knows, it's this song. Yeah, and so he's reducing the deity of Christ, oh, yes. which is critical for our salvation, to make him just a man. Now, so therefore, if you can't humanize Christ to the point where he's no longer deity, wouldn't it be safe to suggest, David, and this is probably what why they've made, uh, if, if his mother was, she would have to be a goddess of sorts. In other words, if, if Christ has got to be deity, you can't make him a human then doesn't his mother have to be a goddess, a co-redemptress of sorts? Isn't that the ultimate perversion of that? If you if you can't make him a human, if he has to be a deity, well, then so does his mother. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's what has happened in one part of Christianity, yes, to make the mother a deity. Uh, in fact, uh, a co-redeemer. 
uh, with uh, Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Pope John uh, the 20, uh, 23rd was one who really believed, really believed in uh, Mariology. And uh, he got closer than any pope in modern history to actually issuing a papal decree declaring her to be a co-redeemer. And I think that the only reason he did not do that is because at the very time he wanted to do it, the Catholic Church was reaching out to Protestants and doing everything they could to draw evangelicals into various statements that they wanted them to join them with, saying that the Catholic Church is okay and the Catholic Church preaches the gospel and we need to be tolerant and all this. And they knew that if they ever issued that papal declaration that Mary is co-redeemer, that would cut off Protestants immediately. So he refrained from doing it and died before he did it. But as far as the average Catholic is concerned, most of them look upon her as a co-redeemer. Yeah, I think actually Pope John Paul consecrated the world oh, yeah. to Mary. Oh, yes, mistaken. absolutely. Although he wouldn't go so far as to sign that the he had the degree. actual symbol of Mary on his coffin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I want to shift back to another evidence. Mary's response, like you went through, a 14-year-old running to the... Uh, to her aunt and saying, I'm pregnant, yeah. and not the thing a typical teenager would do, an unwed mother. What about Joseph res Joseph's response? Oh, that, you know, Joseph is the one that we overlook so often, and that's and that's too bad. Because, uh, it, you know, Joseph must have been, I, I just can't imagine how startled he must have been. I mean, here was this beautiful girl, a, a righteous girl, a girl who had evidently been raised in strict orthodoxy, Jewish orthodoxy, a girl who knew the scriptures, and suddenly he finds out that she's pregnant. He must have been terribly shaken by this. And uh, what should I do? And it says in the scriptures that he decided to put her away privately. Rather than have her stoned to death, which he could have done, to put her away privately and uh, not cause her any disgrace. And that's when the Lord dealt with Joseph. And he began to deal with jo Joseph through dreams. And, uh, and an angel appeared to him in, a, in a, a vision or a dream. And the angel spoke to him and told him, said, Joseph, uh, come on, this is, uh, this is of God. Well, we find that not in the book of Luke, but we find that over in the uh, book of Matthew in chapter 1, where the angel appears uh, to Joseph. And the angel begins to say to him that uh, uh, he is, uh, your, your wife is going to bear the Messiah. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And it says, uh, you shall call his name Yeshua, for he's going to save the people from their sins. And he uh, says, uh, this is going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, that a virgin will be with a child and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And it says, Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel commanded him, and he took her as his wife. So he had a direct vision from God confirming to him that she truly was a virgin. And uh, he, he must have been quite a guy to be able to you know, accept that in faith and believe it with all of his heart, to accept her and keep her. And, uh, of course, we, we don't know what happened to him after that. We know that she had additional children because Jesus, the Scriptures specifically mentioned he had brothers and sisters. And we know one of them was uh, James. Uh, but uh, we don't know what happened to Joseph. Mm -hmm. In this day and age of in vitro fertilization, oh. David where it's not uncommon to have twins or sex, even sextuplets come out of the womb. Why didn't Mary have twins? Why did she only have one son, one only begotten son? Maybe came from the York. 
Well, the world only needed one Savior. I mean, isn't that kind of the point here? (laughs) Yeah, all right. The only begotten Son, meaning... (laughs) The only begotten Son. The only begotten Son of God. Yes, uh, that, that is so true. That is so true. Oh, how we need to affirm the virgin birth. The virgin birth is as important... Uh, almost as important as the resurrection itself. I mean, those are the two things that affirm Jesus as really who he said he was. He he claimed to be God in the flesh. He had to be God in the flesh in order to die for our sins. And those are the two things that really affirm. Of course, there are other affirmations, such as the miracles that he performed, the incredible teachings that he gave that were beyond the wisdom of any man, the sinless life that he lived. But those two things, the beginning of his life and the end of his life, those two items right there, the virgin birth and the resurrection, are the two things that affirm the uh, fact that he truly was the Son of God. Yeah, he had to be human, as you said. He comes from a, a woman. He had to be divine, coming from the Heavenly Father. Yes. And he had to be sinless. Yes, that's true. And then the resurrection, the gospel, that seals the deal. We know that God sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life, as per John three sixteen. But we are also told in Romans 10 that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, That's right. you shall be saved. The gospel is a two-stepper. He had to be born as the Messiah, and he had to go to the cross for our sins, and he had to be raised, resurrected from the grave. That's, that's absolutely That is correct. the gospel. That's yeah. why those two that's things it. are the that's most That's what important. it's all about. You know, I have an item in, in the magazine that we publish. I have a ma- uh, uh, an item in here that uh, uh, has always impressed me deeply and touched me uh, to my very heart, and I'd like to read it for your listeners. Uh, I do not know the author. I've never been able to find it, but it's called The Mystery of the Incarnation, and it reads like this. He who is almighty became a suckling baby. He who is all-wise took on the dumbness of a newborn. He whom the heavens cannot contain was enclosed in a woman's womb. He, before whom the seraphim continually cry, holy, 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 was born of a sinner into a world under the dominion of sin. He who is unchanging went through nine months of constant change to enter a world of change. He who is infinite became but a microscopic cell. He is all-knowing, had to communicate through baby cries. He who is love was born outside a hotel because no one had room for his laboring mother. He, who is the creator, became a creature. He, who has always been spirit, took on the awkwardness of a human body. He, who is eternal, allowed himself to be bound by time. He, who is light, was entombed for nine months in warm darkness. He, who is perfectly just, was accused of being an illegitimate child. He, who is sovereign God, became dependent on a human man and woman for his food and clothing. He, who is clothed with majesty, was laid at birth in a cattle trough. He who alone is self-sufficient had to be cleaned and nursed. He who is life was born with a death warrant around his neck. Can there be a greater mystery? Can there be a greater miracle? Praise be to God for the gift of his son, Jesus our Savior. He was the king of the Jews and king of kings and lord of lords. And is he coming back soon, David, or what? Amen, brother, any moment. I get up every morning and shout, Maranatha, may it be today, Lord. (laughs) I don't believe there's a single prophecy that has to be fulfilled for the Lord to come for his church in the rapture. There's a lot of prophecies that have to be fulfilled before that second coming, but not before uh, he comes in the rapture. And as you know well, uh, Bill, 
The signs of the times indicate that we're right on the threshold of the tribulation. We're just right on track. I mean, it's so, it's so close. And that means the rapture is closer than it's ever been before. Why should a Christian live every day thinking the rapture could happen at every minute? Because the Bible teaches over and over that if you will live expecting the Lord to come any moment, it will motivate you to holiness and it will motivate you to evangelism. You know, Bill, one of the disappointing things for me, most disappointing things in the ministry I have is the pastors who tell me prophecy is of no importance. It doesn't matter what you believe and it's divisive and it's difficult and I just don't want to get into it. Now, the person in the pew, they're wanting to know it, but the, it's the pastors that I have so much difficulty with. They just say, it's, it's, they'll say to me, David, you're a traveling evangelist. You're not a pastor. I'm a pastor. I've got every sin known to man in my congregation. I've got to have practical sermons that deal with gambling and deal with alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, sleeping around, that sort of thing. I said, well, let me tell you something. You don't understand Bible prophecy. Because if you could ever convince your congregation of two things, you'll totally change them. If you will convince them, number one, Jesus really is coming back. The average Christian believes it with their head. They do not believe it with their heart. But if you can move it from the head to the heart and really convince them, Jesus coming back. And number two, that is an event that could occur any moment. You know what will happen? They will commit their lives to holiness and to evangelism. I, what more practical than that? They're trying to win people to Jesus, plus they're cleaning up their life. You don't have to preach sermons about drug addiction and alcohol. They're going to start dealing with those things because they want to commit their lives to holiness and to evangelism. Bible prophecy can be one of the most practical things in the world for the here and now, not just pie in the sky for the future. Well said, David. I want to thank you so much for coming on our program. Well, it's a joy to be with you always, and I pray the Lord will multiply your voice and magnify it out all over the nation. Thank you very much. Very interesting topic for today's edition of Prophecy Update. Join us next week as we look into part two of Vic Oberneder and his discussion with our host Bill Solace on the covenants that are written in the scriptures. Until then, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.